Hi friends, welcome back to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. You're very welcome whether you're here for the very first time or you've been here all along. Please feel free to progress at whatever pace suits you. We're about two and a half years into a five-year project with new episodes being uploaded Monday to Friday pretty much every week. And if you are here for the first time, why not make the decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life and just click on the subscribe button wherever you get your favourite podcasts from. So with that said, we're going to drop into the text and pick up where we left off last time. We're halfway through Mark chapter 3 and we're going to think about those situations when we get misjudged in life. So with that said, I'll say bye-bye for now, but please... Hang on at the end where I'll tell you lots of ways you can connect to this ministry and thereby access additional free Bible teaching resources, but also the other ways you can connect with the material that I'm creating. Okay, thanks and bye for now. I wonder if you have ever been misunderstood or misjudged in a situation. You know, when I was very, very small, I remember looking at my mum and dad's wedding photographs and I saw this picture of this big fancy wedding lunch with a huge cake and they told me that I got upset because I hadn't been invited to what I thought looked like a very fancy party. Talk about misunderstanding a situation. I have a vague remembrance of that and I actually remember getting more upset and cross really when they found that situation was funny. Evidently I was a very confused child. But I wonder have you ever completely misjudged a situation yourself or more importantly have you ever been misjudged or completely misunderstood? As Christian believers, we often find people completely misunderstand or misjudge what we say and what we're thinking. In reality, even a husband and wife can misunderstand each other sometimes. Your partner can be the closest person to you. You can love each other dearly, but there still will be times when you say something and it still will be completely misunderstood. And all the married people said, Amen. Or is it just me then? But here we go. How about this? Have you ever been misunderstood because you're a Christian? I've been told I'm out of touch. I've been told I'm stupid. I've been told I'm out of my mind because I believe what I believe. Perhaps you've even been rejected by people because of your relationship with the Lord. And my question, the question we're going to consider today is what we should we do when that sort of thing happens? Well, it's good to know that it happened to the Lord himself and just maybe we can learn something from how he handled it. Maybe we can learn what we should do. In this passage, we'll see Jesus have an encounter first with his human earthly family. But the narrative is not completed before it's interrupted by these enemies of his with a complete false accusation. And then at the end of the passage, there is another situation where the human family catch up with them again and he speaks into that situation. So there are two groups of people in this passage and there's a very clear sense that they're actually making separate charges against him. One is his actual family and the other is the religious hierarchy, his religious enemies, if you like. 
the passage is bookended with this situation with his family, but there's an interruption, if you like, in the middle of his text by these religious people. And by it being laid out in that way, it actually naturally divides this passage into three parts. So let's begin by looking at what's going on here. And with that in mind, we'll look at this initial conversation between him and his family or him and one of his disciples and his family, when verse 20 tells us this. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Now it's worth noting that if you harmonize this narrative across all three of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus, the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark and Luke, you will find that Jesus at this point has in fact returned from being up a mountainside. Many believe this incident probably occurred after he had delivered what is usually referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, which isn't actually contained here in Mark, a shorter account of the life of Jesus. So what we see here, we believe has happened here, he's come down from the mountains and he now enters a house and most commentators assume that this is probably the house, the same house back in Capernaum that he was in before. He's back at Peter's house again. At any rate, he comes down from the mountainside and he's in this house and we are told that the crowd has gathered around again. And we are told that his own family now have heard about these things, it calls them, and they decide they're going to go and try and grab hold of him because they're worried that he's out of his mind. So this is his human family, and they've now come from Nazareth, and they've come to Capernaum because they've heard about what's going on, and they're coming to try and grab hold of him and take him home, basically. So what's going on here with Jesus' family? Well, if you look at verse 21 carefully, it says, when they heard about this. Now, one of the disadvantages of very slowly working our way through the Bible, verse by verse, in the way that we're doing it together, is sometimes there is a danger we might disconnect each section as we approach it day by day and not see the context in which it belongs or that which has just occurred before. What's going on here is this is not just referring to what has happened in the last few verses which we obviously looked at yesterday, when it talks about having heard about this or about these things, as some translation says, it means that they've heard about everything that has been going on up to this point, including his stirring up the religious authorities. There are some good translations that don't say, they say when they heard, then talking about his family, they say when they heard about everything that had happened before. So the family are thinking, well, they're certainly thinking he's in danger and they're thinking he might be out of his mind. But probably, ultimately, they're worried about his situation because they understand the danger he's putting himself in. They know what he is saying and what he is doing in facing up to the religious authorities of his day is going to be potentially calamitous for him. By behaving in this way, they see that he's endangering himself and perhaps you might say he's endangering the wider family as well. They know that by his arguing and debating with the religious leaders, he's potentially going to get himself killed. Maybe they already knew about this Pharisees and the Herodians coming together and planning to kill him. So they decide they're going to go and grab him, take hold of him, lay hands on him, as the text says, and take him home, back home to where they think he might be safe. 
But the point I would like to make is they too have misunderstood him. And the point I suppose I'm making for us today and a parallel for us today, it is very likely that any of us who have, in a sense, this mind of Christ are often going to be misunderstood, perhaps even by our own family. When you think biblically, those people who don't know the Lord and don't know the Word of God will not understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. They may not get it, and some might probably think that you're nuts. Ultimately, unbelieving people do not understand why Christians do and why they act the way they do and why they operate according to biblical guidelines or concepts. And that's what's going on here. And that's just the beginning of the story. There's lots more, so let's pick it up in the next verse, verse 22. And now we've got these scribes arriving, these teachers of the law, and it says, And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So the teachers of the law, they've come down from Jerusalem and they think they've got things figured out. They say he's possessed by the devil. He's possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Satan has possessed him, they're saying. But very importantly, they then add this statement and say, it is by the prince of demons that he is driving out demons. These people, these religious leaders, are desperate to come up with an explanation of these miraculous events they are witnessing. And the best thing they seem to come up with, he must be doing it by the power of Satan. So his family on the one hand are saying he's out of his mind, and the Pharisees and their scribes are coming and saying, no, he's doing this because he's got the devil in him. Both groups of people are analysing what's going on here, and they're trying to explain it and respond to it. So there's two schools of thought here. One group, his family, are saying he's lost his marbles, and the other is saying, well, he's got the devil in him. The truth, of course, is that neither of these perspectives are true. But the big thing to take note of today is how Jesus will answer those accusations. And he actually answers the second accusation first. And then we'll see him later, as we come back to the passage, deal with the family and their accusation. And he deals with that at the end of the passage. But first here he's going to answer those who accuse him of being possessed by the devil. And his response is in the following verse 23 onwards. And it says, So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan, he said. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself, he is divided and he cannot stand and his end has come. So keep in mind, they started out by saying that he was using the power of Satan to cast out Satan, and he's saying, how can Satan do that? How can Satan cast himself out? And he then unpacks this more by saying, look, if a kingdom is divided against itself, then that kingdom clearly isn't going to stand. And so what he's saying is, he's saying that if Satan is the one doing his thing, Satan would be bringing about his own ends. So the point I believe he's making is saying he's saying is the idea that by the power of Satan Satan is casting out demons or casting out himself that's absurd because that in effect would be an act of self-destruction and Satan is not willingly going to bring about his own ending and his own kingdom so what you're saying is a contradictory statement he says 
This is a bit like saying the bride is a spinster or the bachelor is a good husband. There's no internal logic to what they're saying. So firstly, Jesus is saying, this is absurd. Things don't work like that. That can never happen. Satan will not cast out himself and destroy himself. It doesn't make sense. Then he says a second thing, verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. So we're back in parabolic teaching here. I think the key to understanding this verse is simply to understand the fact that the one who is supposed to be entering the strong man's house here is Jesus himself. And the strong man referred to in this illustration is actually Satan. He's stating the fact that it is he who, by coming here on earth, is entering Satan's house, the strong man, and it is he who is binding him. Satan is called the powerful one in this parable because, remember, it is he who claims to be the Lord of this world. Thereby, Jesus, by coming back, is entering his house and tying him up. And he's coming back to plunder this realm to which Satan has claimed a temporary ownership, but a false claim of ownership. I am stronger than Satan, Jesus is saying. I can bind him in order to come back and claim back to God the things that he is claiming to hold on to, which was only ever temporary anyway. I am stronger than Satan can ever be, Jesus says, because I am God's only son. You lot, you religious guys, you're saying Satan is inside of me. Incorrect. I am the Lord. I am walking around this earth and claiming back that which Satan believed he was Lord over. And that's what's really going on here. That's an astonishing answer. But he has a third thing to say. Let me recap. Firstly, he says what you're saying doesn't have any internal logic. It doesn't make any sense. Secondly, he's saying Satan has not got power over me. I'm in control of this situation. In fact, I've bound Satan and I'm claiming back that which he thinks he's got control of. And the third thing he says, well, let me read it to you, verse 28 and 29. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven they are guilty of an eternal sin. So Jesus comes along and says, watch, I can cast out a demon. Watch, I can straighten a withered hand and I can do these things by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying that you guys, these Pharisees, you are rejecting these miracles, the miracles that I do, and by doing so, you are rejecting the Messiah of God. You are thereby rejecting both the ministry and the message of the Holy Spirit. And by doing that, you blaspheme the Holy Spirit by attributing the works of God done in the power of the Holy Spirit by attributing them to Satan. Failing to recognize a miracle is one thing, but crediting Satan with the work of the Holy Spirit through his Son on earth is quite another. Sin sat between humanity and God. We couldn't get over it. We couldn't get around it in order to get back to God. Satan had taken temporary control of the world. But when Christ came, God was able to forgive it and he removed the obstacle that lay in the way between individuals and their fellowship with the Lord. There's no obstacle to that fellowship anymore. There's no blockage in the path to anyone's relationship with God. 
okay, let's pick up the story and go back and see and talk about his family. And it tells us, then Jesus' mothers and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him out. Please notice that they're not in there, they're on the outside. So his family are standing outside the house and it's so packed that they can't get in. So they get someone and they say to him, where his family? Go and tell him what we're here. Now we already know that they have plans to try and lay hands on him and take him home, take him back to Nazareth with them. So that's their intent. So let's see what happens. Verse 32 and 33 tells us, A crowd was sitting around him and they told him. So this is in the house, it's crammed with people. And someone comes, one of his disciples probably, and says, your mother and brother are outside looking for you. So how does he handle this situation? He says to those around him in the building, he says, who are my mothers and brothers? Now that sounds like a really strong statement to me. It sounds like almost a rejection of his family. But you've got to understand that that's not what's really going on here. In fact, we will see later on the cross that he will commission John to look after his mother once he's gone. So he's definitely not rejecting his family. What we have here is a situation where a message has been got to Jesus via the message on the door from his family outside saying, come out now, we want to meet with you. Remembering this is the continuation of the narrative from the first few verses in the opening scripture. So the family have brought themselves to the door of the house. There's this big crowd outside and in and Jesus is in the building and they get a message to him. But it's important to understand that Jesus is not seen here to be responding directly to his family. This is what he says to the crowd around him inside the house. He's using it as a teaching opportunity, a God moment to give a message to the people inside the house. Look, it actually says this. Verse 34 and 35 says, Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and brothers, referring to those outside who've just come with this message for them. And he says, Whoever does the will of God is now my brother and sister and mother. So he's saying to the crowd, you all are now potentially my brothers and sisters. Here is my family, my mother, my brother, my sisters. He's widening up this classification by saying, whoever does the will of the Father is spiritually part of my family, my brother, my sister, my mother. So Jesus is taking the opportunity of this situation with his, his human family, if you like, to demonstrate to the crowd that it is anybody, any person who is obedient to the will of God, then we're all together in one family of God. But of course, the question that rises out of Jesus' statement in verse 35 is, what do you actually have to do to be part of this family of God? And the answer is very obvious. To be part of a family, you need to be born into it, right? So to be part of the family of God, you need to be born into the family of God, born again into the family of God. And how is one born again? John chapter 6, 39, 40 is probably one of the most clearest explanation of it. When Jesus has heard to say these words, and this is the will of him who has sent me, for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall be, have eternal life and will be raised up at the last day. So this text, these words of Jesus are explicitly saying that it is the Father's will that everyone should look to the Son and believe. 
So in other words, you have to believe in the Son in order to do the will of the Father. And it is by doing that and believing in that way that then you become a member of the family of God. And that's what makes you and all the other people on the earth who have done the same thing part of your family also. So here's the big point Jesus is trying to make. Being a member of the family of God is not based on physical relationships. It's based on spiritual relationships, which is itself is based on trust and faith. Now, this message, of course, is particularly relevant to these people sitting around him in, on this day, to this first century Jewish crowd sitting in front of him, because they've been told all their lives that they're a mem- by being a member of the Jewish faith, by being a member of the nation of Israel, they automatically have a sort of inside track with God. But Jesus here teaches, and he will do this over and over again, it's not about being the son of Abraham physically that makes you individually right with God, The nation have still an important role of the plan of God, but being part of that nation physically doesn't make you right individually with God. It's about being the child of God spiritually that can make a man or a woman right with him. As an aside, even in the Old Testament, it did actually teach that this was all through faith. It says that God credited Abraham with righteousness through faith. So it was always that way anyway. So in conclusion, I'd like to try and pull together what we've seen in this passage and answer just a couple of questions as to about how and why we as Christians living today, what we should do when we are misunderstood. And this, I believe, is the sum of this passage. We see Jesus's enemies misunderstand him in the most dramatic way by accusing him of the fact that he has Satan in him and he's doing those things under the auspice and with the power of Satan. And Jesus answers that accusation. He faces that particular accusation head on, that false statement that the religious people are making about him. He dismantles it, destroys it. But then we see his family also accuse him of something different. They say he's out of his mind, no doubt out of worry and fear for him and for themselves. But note, he didn't answer that accusation directly. He avoids a confrontation with them. Instead, he just identifies, simply says that what he's doing, he's doing because he is obedient to the will of the Father, and he's doing it, and along with everybody else who does things according to the will of the Father, he is part of this new family of God. So what is the application we can draw from this? Well, when you're misunderstood spiritually, you should answer that. But when someone thinks what you're doing or what you believe is weird or wrong, you shouldn't necessarily battle with them. You should simply say that what you're doing is motivated by or based upon the biblical principles that you hold on to and then simply move on. Don't get into a battle with them if it's just a misunderstanding. Just answer it biblically. But also there are occasions when it's better to say nothing. Sometimes it is actually better to avoid than engage. That's what we see here. It is better to avoid a fight than just to come up with a clever answer, no matter how right it is. Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, sometimes stood up and took a beating. He even went to jail on occasions. But in other situations, we see him just move away from that situation. So sometimes he answers and sometimes he avoids. But how do you know which is which and when to answer and when to avoid? 
Well, I'd love to tell you there's a hard and fast rule, but I don't really believe there is a hard and fast answer to that question. But I can tell you this. When you're not sure, when you can't discern for sure, I believe you should actually avoid. Don't listen to what people say. Try and instead listen to the internal prompting of the Holy Spirit of God that has been placed within you if you're a Christian believer. It doesn't matter what people say about you because Jesus is inside you, which means you're now connected to the spiritual family of God. You've been forgiven and redeemed. You don't really have to worry about the other things. And the way to handle being misunderstood is just simply to remember that you have God himself within you. And by having himself inside you, you, my friend, are a member of the family of God which sometimes means you simply don't need to listen to the crowd. Sometimes you can answer because you can simply say that what you're doing is motivated by the will of God or obedience to the word of God. But sometimes, you know what? They won't understand you. They won't agree with you. And they won't do that simply because they don't have the mind of Christ. But you don't need to worry about that. You can just be encouraged and you can avoid confrontation and you can move on. And I do hope you find that an encouragement. Okay, that's it for today. Thank you for spending your time with me, your valuable time with me today on this amazing journey together through the Bible. Can I remind you that the Bible Project Daily Podcast is hosted on buzzsprout.com and that's the place you'll find the links to all the ways you can connect with me. You can find my Amazon author page where you can buy one of my books, the profits of which support this ministry, or you can actually find Patreon as well, which is the place where people commit to support me with a small monthly contribution. Or you can just be part of this community and connect with it by looking at the socials or the archive on Buzzsprout or the YouTube channel. And if you're finding that you're benefiting from this, one of the best ways you can support this ministry and enable other people to find it, to see it, to experience spending time together with God every day, is simply by sharing it on those places on the internet like the social media accounts that you uh, exist and perhaps post on occasionally. And a really effective way, I'm told, is you could simply share a review of it, a positive review, where you get your podcasts from. So, thank you again for being with me. I do hope you've enjoyed our time together. Why not take a look at some of the books I've published? My most recent one is a completely new project where I've done a modern contemporary English paraphrase of a very famous book in church history, Martin Luther's Commentary on Galatians. That's available now on Amazon and other places. But with that all said, that's it for today. I do hope you find it helpful. And let's come back together tomorrow. Why don't we come back and continue our journey together through the Gospel of Mark? So with that all said, I'll say bye-bye for now.